message in uh, looking at Nehemiah. I hope them being broken up will not mean that you've lost track of the story. I've been encouraged to hear of people taking the time to read through the book to keep in touch with what we've been looking at. Maybe you'll need to read it again just to pick things up again. This is the last one I'll be doing on Nehemiah. Next week, John Parsons will be speaking, so please pray for him that uh, he will receive God's word for us. He's going to be spending some time in Nehemiah as well, I think, if he's a good boy. Um, So he'll be finishing off this series on the book of Nehemiah. Today, we're in chapter 4, and uh, we're going to read the whole of this chapter to begin with. It would probably be helpful for you as well just to put uh, a marker in Ephesians chapter 6 as well because we'll be referring to that at the beginning. So Nehemiah 4 and Ephesians 6. Now it came about that when Samballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. And he spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble or even the burned ones? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was near him and he said, even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it or I'm informed by... John Wilthew, as he seems to know things like that, it means if a fox should go against it, you know what I mean when I say go, he would break the stone wall down. So it's humorous, but this is what these people are saying about it, saying, you are so pathetic, you people. Even if a fox should go against it, it will fall down. This is not very upbuilding. They don't have the ministry of encouragement. Verse 4, Hear, O our God, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before thee, for they have demoralised the builders. So we built the wall and the whole wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Now it came about when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites... And the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on and that the breaches began to be closed. They were very angry. And all of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. But we prayed to our God and because of them we set up a guard against them day and night. Thus in Judah it was said, the strength of the burden bearers is failing. Yet there is much rubbish, and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, They will not know or see until we come among them, kill them, and put a stop to the work. And it came about when the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times, They will come up against us from every place where you may turn. Then I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, the exposed places. And I stationed the people in families with their swords, spears and bows. When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your houses. And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us. God had frustrated their plan Then all of us returned to the wall, each to his work. And it came about from that day on that half of my servants carried on the work, while half of them held the spears, the shields, the bows and the breastplates, and the captains were behind the whole house of Judah. Those who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried burdens took their load with one hand doing the work and the other holding a weapon. As for the builders, each wore his sword, girded at his side as he built, while the trumpeter stood near me. I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive. We're separated on the wall, 
at whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we carried on the work with half of them holding spears from dawn until the stars appeared. Pretty long shifts, aren't they? At that time, I also said to the people, let each man with his servant spend the night within Jerusalem so that they may be a guard for us by night and a labourer by day. So neither I, my brothers, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us removed our clothes. Each took his weapon, even to the water. Let's pray. Father, it's so wonderful today just to get another glimpse of Jesus as we worship together and to celebrate together your rich mercy and your great love. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who has conquered for us. We read of warfare here. We thank you that he made an open show of his enemies on the cross, disarming them, every ruler and authority, disarmed by the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that you will teach us now how we fight in this warfare, how we stand against opposition as we build. We pray, Lord, that like Paul, we will be able to say we are not ignorant of the schemes of the enemy, that we are not ignorant of his devices. Please teach us. Please help us to understand. Please help us to become good soldiers in your army, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Today I want us to look at the whole matter of as soon as we get into this building program of God's, as soon as we find ourselves amongst those that are called the church, we need to realise that we are straight into a battle, that we are straight into opposition, that we are straight into warfare, that the Christian life for us, however we may look at it, there is one vital truth that we must make sure that we don't miss, and that is that we're in a warfare, that there's a battle going on, and that we need to be aware of it. As we've seen, as we've looked at these chapters before, the job for Nehemiah and the people with him is hard enough already. The state of Jerusalem is terrible, it's broken down. He eventually gets the people with him, and they start to build. And then as soon as they get into their building program, we read in chapter 2 of Tobiah and, uh, and the other guy whose name I've just forgotten, Sambalat, uh, immediately there's opposition for them. It says, chapter 2, verse 10, the fact that somebody cared about the Jews, it was very displeasing to them. And here we read in the first verse of this chapter that they were furious and very angry. To start with, chapter 2, it's, uh, they're a bit upset, it's displeasing, they're upset, but there are letters from the king uh, who Nehemiah's come from and uh, they don't do much about it. But as soon as they hear that the work is actually progressing, that something is happening amongst these people, they become furious and angry. Today, with arms treaties being signed and uh, the growth of movements like CND, it's unfashionable and very unpalatable to talk about war, to talk about warfare, to talk about military strategy. It's an unpopular subject, and rightly so. But we need to be careful that in all that we may feel about nuclear disarmament and so on, we don't miss an important truth for the people of God. That whatever we feel about warfare out there in the material world, as spiritual people, we are in a battle now. And we can't have CND marches to get rid of it. Satan will not respond to peace banners. He won't respond and say, please disarm Satan, please stop fighting us. He won't respond to that at all. He is committed to destroying the church if he can. We know he can't, but he's still committed to doing all that he can to spoil what we are trying to achieve in God. In 1 Peter 5 and verse 8, it says, Be on the alert, because you've got an adversary. 
Let me ask you to begin with today. Are you on the alert because you know you have an adversary? Do you know as a believer this morning that you have an enemy who is seeking to come and steal and kill and destroy everything that God is trying to do in your life? You have an adversary. Wake up! You've got an adversary. Be on the alert. You've got an adversary. Be careful how you live. You have got an enemy today. He doesn't just come at particular times when uh, you feel it's okay to get into a fight. He's going to come to you again and again and again in all sorts of different guises because he's committed to destroying the work of God in your life. And I want you to start thinking now about things you've been going through, attitudes you've found rising up in your heart. Maybe you've been backing off from what God's been doing amongst us. Maybe you've taken some steps forward and now you find you can't go forward anymore. Maybe there's sin in your life. Maybe there's circumstances and you're trying to work it all out. Think about this, folks. You have an adversary and he's going to withstand you every step of the way. You think, but I did that. I did all this for God. I committed myself. I worked so hard and things haven't worked out for me. There is somebody who is resisting you. We have an adversary. And that's what Nehemiah encounters straight away. We cannot talk about pacifism in spiritual terms for the Christian. We cannot be pacifists because we have an enemy who is set on destroying God's work. In the Old Testament, we see this illustrated many, many times through literal battles, literal armies, kings to be overthrown, cities to be destroyed. In the New Testament, Paul takes on similar imagery. He uses the same kind of words. He talks about warfare. He talks about us being soldiers. He talks about the army. He talks about spiritual conflict. And Ephesians 6, which is the most familiar passage to us, verse 12 says this, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it is against rulers, powers, world forces of this darkness. Spiritual forces. Do you ever feel that you are struggling? Do you just like to own up if you ever feel you are struggling? So I'm trying to press on with God. Good. Got some honesty in the place. Me too. Both hands. I'm struggling. What is it? Lord, I'm struggling. I don't understand. Have you stopped loving me? Lord, what's gone wrong? Have I fallen out with somebody? Or Your struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against rulers. It's against world forces of darkness. It's against spiritual forces. Now, I don't want you to leave this place with a Satan complex. And uh, we'll see how Nehemiah dealt with the opposition. He certainly didn't get taken up with the opposition. But we need to be aware of the schemes of the enemy. And so often I find with Christians they put down difficulties to everything except understanding that day by day there is somebody who is contending with us. And it's our enemy. Paul said, you've got a struggle on your hands. You have a struggle. You have a fight. And it's not against flesh and blood, but it is no less real. If every morning when you woke up and you wanted to get out to work and there was somebody resisting you, you, some of you might be pleased, don't want to go to work, but... If you found there was, you wanted to get out, you wanted to do what was right to do, and there was somebody literally standing at your front door, stopping you every time, you would be aware of your struggle daily. And yet the spiritual reality is just the same. There is somebody withstanding us. So we need to see ourselves as a church in conflict, a people in conflict. As soon as you start to build, there will be opposition. As soon as you start to get things sorted out in your life, you feel you're making steps in God, I can assure you there will be opposition. You feel that you've just been, things have been tough and you're just kind of getting free and it's as though things are opening up for you and then whack! Lord, I don't understand why did that thing happen? Things were going so well. You've got an enemy who's withstanding you. 
as Terry was saying last week, our enemies are often very, very subtle. But that doesn't mean that they're any less effective. We don't find ourselves in, in physical persecution in this country, but don't go to sleep about the enemy. You can see an example in church history. There are two uh, famous persecutions in the early church. The persecution of Decius and the persecution of Diocletian, two Roman emperors. Decius, his plan was to destroy the church by compromising the church, by compromising its faith. He said, you can carry on worshipping, you can carry on doing all that you want to do as long as you worship this as well. All you need to do is get hold of this certificate and as long as you've got this certificate to say you've bowed down to that God, then it's okay, you can carry on. That was a very, very successful persecution of the early church. Because many people uh, got hold of the certificate by, um, you know, kind of uh, unfair means. Many uh, leaders of churches led their whole church to worship another god and say, right, it's okay now, we've got our certificates, we can carry on. The church became compromised. Diocletian, on the other hand, wanted to destroy the church literally by demolishing its buildings and killing its people. It was Decius who was the most successful in destroying the church. When the Christians found themselves against physical persecution, their courage rose up. They called on God. And they became strong. But it was the more insidious temptation. It was the more insidious persecution. It was the more subtle Opposition that actually weakened the church the most. And we, have, we don't have a lot of physical persecution. We don't have a lot of confrontation with people where we are personally attacked. A lot of the opposition we experience is subtle and that's why we need to be informed about it so that we don't fall and become compromised by it. So every Christian is in a conflict right from the beginning. Let me say to you, new Christians, the enemy does not give us a qualification period. He doesn't say, oh, you're a new Christian. Oh, well, I'll just let you get settled. I'll give you a few months. No, he's in a rage. He's furious. He's angry. He hates anybody turning to the living God wants to destroy what God's doing from the word go. That's why it's so important for us to care for people who we know are new believers. It's so important for us to teach them and care for them. And it is so important for you, new believers, to get in with the people of God, to become part of the church, to find protection, to find instruction, to find safe places so that you'll be able to stand strong. Paul says for every Christian, you're in a conflict. Stand firm. Stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Now, have, the devil has schemes. He has very intricate, clever ways to trip you up. All sorts of schemes. You're thinking, yeah, it's really weird what's been going on at the moment. Yes, this happened and that happened and then I started feeling like that and that person said this to me and this letter came through the post and, oh boy, and you find yourself depressed or low or backing off from God. He's got schemes. He's not, you know, he doesn't come to you in some very obvious way. A uh, friend comes, please come and get drunk with me tonight and we'll do a lot of sins. That's not the enemy's way. You say, what do you mean, come and do a lot of sins? I'm a Christian, I'm not going to act like that. It's something subtle and insidious. Something that maybe you don't notice straight off that's sinful. Something you don't notice to begin with that's going to compromise your faith. I found myself in a conversation yesterday talking very reasonably with somebody about religion and things. And I was going down the track in this conversation, and I suddenly got to a point where I realised I'd said about 101 things that I didn't believe. But I was being friendly and gracious and 
I got called the vicar quite a lot of times yesterday at the wedding. And also, you know, I think it got into me a bit, you know, the vicar. Oh, I've been really... <laughs> Turn the colour around. I was getting ingratiating and, you know, friendly. And I thought, what have I just said? Somebody said to me, there are many ways to God, aren't there? But it's all the one God. And I was going, yeah. (laughs) What am I talking about? He's got schemes. And he'll try and ensnare us. Come along to this party. It's going to be all right. It's going to be. Nothing's going to go on. You'll be fine. Sure, yeah. And you think, yeah, if I go along with them to the party, then I'll get alongside them. Maybe I can lead them to God. And then you find yourself in a compromising position that you can't get out of. The enemy has schemes. Paul says, don't be ignorant of them. He says, you've got to struggle. Be aware you're in one. There are spiritual forces opposed to us. He says in Ephesians 5, these are evil days they are evil days we can see that can't we all around us that evil days for us that evil days there's evil around wanting to destroy the church of God and Paul says be careful now I've found in my brief history as a full time leader that Christmas time New Year time can often be Terrible times for believers. You kind of get to the end of the winter term and you kind of, oh, blow me. You know, so many things have been happening. And Christmas, you all look forward to Christmas, but you're zipping around the shops and spending more money than you've got. I hope not. And you're going out to parties and socialising with people and there seem to be more services and stuff and then you get to the new year and you start reflecting on all the things you didn't do in the old year and you think, I'm going to do that and it can get to you. And I want to say to you, particularly at this time of year, be careful. They're evil days. Be careful. You've got an enemy. Don't just let things slip thinking, oh, it's just me, I'm just having an off day. The enemy has schemes. Paul says, having done... I am going to preach from Nehemiah, by the way. Paul says, finally, in in verse 14 of Ephesians 6, having done everything, or is it verse 13? Having done everything, verse 13, stand firm. Having done everything, stand firm. Now, the problem is, we often try and stand firm without having done everything. And then we wonder why we fall over. We try and stand firm. We try and stand against this adversary. We try and resist him. We try and be aware of his schemes without having done everything. Paul says, stand firm, having girded yourself with truth. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness knowing how to use the sword of the Spirit, using the shield of faith. So stand firm, having done that. So don't come and say, oh, Chris, I'm all over the place. I've had such a bad time, I'm battered. Oh, I just feel like falling over, crawling into a corner. Have you done everything? Have you taken the pains to learn about the armour of God? I don't know if any of you watch American football. I've become quite a fan. I like to watch American football. I think they're a load of wimps because of all the armour they wear. <laughs> Not like English rugby, eh? <laughs> they're probably just more sensible than English rugby players. See, they, they got huge helmets with grills over their faces and pads which make them look, you know, I'd like to look like that, you know, kind of... <laughs> manly sort of (laughs) thigh pads and stuff some of them wear gloves and they they equip themselves to do the job and they still get hurt they still get injured even though they have all this stuff on now Christian out there you are in a battle and please do not be foolish enough to go into that battle without finding out about the armour of God that he's provided for you. 
Don't go into that battle without knowing what are the vital truths you've got to have in your life. What it means to use the shield of faith. What it means to have the peace of God ruling your life. Don't go into the battle without any armour on. Don't try and live this life carelessly because you will surely become a casualty. If some guy ran out onto the field, even the kicker in American football, who's on the field for about 30 seconds, and somebody throws a ball and they go, and he kicks it and then he's off, even he wears armour. He's only on there for a couple of seconds. And yet there's the possibility that he might get hit. And when you get hit, you get hit. It's dangerous. And the Christian life is a dangerous life because we have an enemy. So Paul says, 2 Corinthians 2.11, they behaved in a certain way in order that no advantage should be taken of him by Satan because he is not ignorant of the schemes of Satan. And we're going to look at the schemes that the enemy brought against Nehemiah. And uh, we'll try and do that quite quickly. Firstly, if he, uh, back into Nehemiah now, verse chapter 4. And verse 2, we find that the first scheme is mockery. Mockery. Purpose of mockery is to undermine us, take away our confidence, that little voice inside, telling us that we'll never succeed, telling us that we might as well give up now, telling us that our care group isn't going to work out, telling us that we're not good enough, that we're not strong enough, or that we're not spiritual enough to carry on with what God is telling us to do. It's a mocking voice. It's trying to undermine us all the time. That's what was happening with Nehemiah. Come on, give up. You're too weak. You'll never succeed. In chapter 2 and verse 19, it says, uh, you know, you're just shameful. You're pathetic. I think they're trying to remind them of what they had been like. Remember at the beginning of the book, it says they were ashamed and they were reproached. And in verse 19... They mocked us and despised us. They're saying, look, you're despised. You're shameful. So they say, you'll never change. Mocking. You'll never get over that problem. You'll never get strong. You'll never really be truly involved. Give up. Forget it. Just stay on the edges. It's okay. And there's that voice coming to us all the time, trying to undermine the work of God in our lives. And the purpose is to make you agree. Say, oh yeah, I'm weak, I am weak. I've tried, I've had a go, but I know I'm never going to change really. And as soon as you start agreeing with that voice, as soon as you start agreeing with that mocking voice, it'll start to produce fruit in your life. It'll mean that when the word of God comes, you'll never be able to rise to it with faith. When we start to sing songs of worship and what Jesus has done for us, you'll feel that it's not really true for you. And your life in God starts to be destroyed. What did Nehemiah do to resist this mockery? What did he do? What was his antidote? Well, he did resist it. He did resist it. Seems so simple, doesn't it? What does the Bible say? Resist the devil. Submit yourself to God and resist the devil. Did you know you could do that? You can resist the devil. When those mocking voices come, when those temptations come, when that undermining comes, Nehemiah is an aggressive man. In Ephesians, oh grief, in Nehemiah, we are in Nehemiah, 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 chapter 4. He says, hear, O our God, how we despise. Return their reproach on their heads and give them up for plunder. Don't forgive their sins. This isn't a very gracious Christian leader, is it? (laughs) He's resisting his enemy. Don't forgive them, Lord. Hear how they're despising us, God. Give them up for plunder. Let them have a bad time. We had captivity, let them have captivity. He's an aggressive 
resister of the enemy. And when mocking comes to us, when you find your faith, when you find your position in God being undermined, when you start hearing voices that saying, you are guilty, really, you're not forgiven, really, that stuff you did, God hasn't taken it away, really, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. As well as resisting the devil, resisting his enemy, Nehemiah is single-minded. He's single-minded. Verse 6, So we built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together. We resist the devil. We resist his voice. We resist the things he's saying to us, but we don't get wholly taken up with him. We get on with the work. We get on with what Jesus has given us to do. We get on with doing what we know is right. Let me say that mockery, this undermining, is likely to take root in your life if you are not committed to the task. If you are not wholeheartedly, 100% given to the task, you'll start finding yourself getting into these kind of, all the time, like ping-pong relationship with the enemies. He's saying things and you resist him, and he's saying things and you resist him, and he's saying things and you resist him. If you get, don't get like that banter with the enemy. We don't want that. We resist him and get on with the job. We resist him and give ourselves completely to what God has given us to do. We resist him and we preach the gospel. We resist him and we love our brothers and sisters. We resist him and we good fathers and good mothers and good children and whatever. We get on with what God has given us to do. We commit ourselves to the task. The second thing that came against Nehemiah was threats. Threats. If you'd like to look at verse 8 or verse 7. Now it came about when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on and that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry and all of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause a disturbance in it. I want you to take note of what actually happens here. And what actually happens is nothing. There are just a lot of threats around. There's just a lot of noise taking place. All of them conspire together to come and fight against Jerusalem. We pray to our God. Verse 10, in Judah it was said, the strength of the burden bearers is failing. We ourselves are unable to build. Our enemies said they will not know or see until we come among them. And it came about when the Jews who lived near them told us ten times they will come up against us from every place. It's just a load of hot air. And yet the effect was to stop the work. Now is that a clever ploy or is that a clever ploy? That you just threaten enough, you just scare people enough and they give up anyway. And you didn't have to do a thing. You just sit around and conspire for a bit and put the story out. And you find that the work is stopped. Nothing actually happened. There was just a lot of talk. And that happens with us too. We start to fear what might take place. We start to fear what could go wrong. We start to think, nothing ever goes right for me. That looks like, if I go that way, that looks as though it's going to be so hard for me. What if such and such takes place? Would anybody own up to thinking like that ever? What if? What if it goes wrong? I find myself like that sometimes on a Sunday morning. And I'm, I'm preparing to come, and I think, what if it's a bad meeting? Oh, man of faith. What if I don't preach well? What if my notes look like double Dutch when I look at them? And it's a a what if. Nothing's happened. Nothing's actually taken place. Nothing's gone wrong. Everything's fine. And yet we find ourselves that just the threat, just the possibility that things are going to go wrong is enough to stop us. And we find in verse 10 that in Judah it is said, 
we are unable to rebuild. They'd joined the war to half its height already. They'd had some success. When Nehemiah first called them, they said, let us arise and build. We now find, with a few threats, they are totally demoralised. I want to tell you to be careful of getting demoralised by just the possibility of things going wrong. By just the possibility of things being difficult. Often when nothing has even happened. Often this demoralisation comes out of overreaction and exaggeration from things that people have said. This is a good one, which I've heard a couple of times in Clarendon. There is a groundswell of dissatisfaction. Okay? You try and find a groundswell. I've never yet identified a groundswell. It's a very difficult thing to find. It sounds like a groundhog or a mole or some, some creature. But I've never yet found a groundswell. I've had people say it to me a couple of times. Don't you realise there's a grand swell of dissatisfaction? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you think, oh no, there's a grand swell of dissatisfaction. <laughs> Did you know there's a grand swell of dissatisfaction? <laughs> and it sounds terrifying, doesn't it? A grand swell of dissatisfaction is coming. Because <laughs> <laughs> grand swells, they sound like little waves that's going to get into a tidal wave. Great way of talking to demoralise leadership. Or um, a classic, a lot of people are very. (laughs) A lot of people are very. (laughs) Or um, everything has been going wrong for me. Everything. So, what do you mean, everything? And usually, when you poke these things, you find that they're about this big. And there's not a lot to them. Let's just take note of who is saying these things. I don't feel that these Jews who lived near to the enemy had a ministry of encouragement. I mean, even the, even the enemy only said it once. Even the enemy, in verse 11, said, um, you know they'll not see us until we come among them and kill them. Even the enemy only said it once, but the Jews who lived near them said it ten times. Talk about exaggerating and overreacting. Can I ask you, do you overreact to small problems? Do you overreact? A difficulty occurs and it throws you on an enormous wobbler. But when you analyse it, you see, actually, it is only a small thing. I find that a lot of people react like that. Just a small thing. They forget their principles. They haven't got the armour of God on. They're not thinking truth. They're not thinking truth. They haven't got a breastplate of uh, righteousness. Sorry, breastplate of righteousness. They haven't got a shield of faith. They haven't got faith which says, no, God's with me. They think, oh, this has gone wrong. (laughs) Show me a leader. Please, where's a leader? Phone calls. I've got to talk to you now. Wow, this must be urgent. What's the problem? And you poke it, say, well, it could wait till tomorrow, couldn't it? It's people who haven't got any armour on who react like that. It's people who aren't living by truth. It's people who aren't living by faith. And there are some people here, these Jews, they're not living by truth. They're not living by faith in God. I think Nehemiah must have been partially deaf because he hears all these terrible reports. But in verse 14, he just says, don't be afraid of them. He says, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Do you remember that phrase, great and awesome? It was the phrase that he prayed to his God. When the opposition came, Nehemiah fell back on the God that he had discovered in prayer. Have you discovered God? Do you know this great and awesome God? Don't listen to people 
who live near the enemy. Listen to people who live near to God. Remember Tony Morton, um, who has an apostolic ministry similar to Terry's, saying, uh, I was at an elders training day, he said, I try and get near people who are full of faith. I try and listen to people who are full of faith. I was talking to somebody yesterday about preaching in the open air. Ten guesses who. And Lex said to me, (laughs) (laughs) something, he's talking to Rose, and he said, I am going to preach to a full Churchill Square where they'll be hanging off the statue in Churchill Square. I thought, Amen. It's a man of faith. See, unbelief, people who live near the enemy, they centre in on what they see only. But faith is the substance of things hopeful, the evidence of things not yet seen. Not seen. Not, it's not there. You can't see it. But it doesn't mean that it's not real. Nehemiah said, remember the Lord. There are all sorts of threats, all possibilities of things going wrong. Maybe, actually, they were going to be physically fought against, but Nehemiah's focus was on God. He took some action, he made some defences, but his first antidote to their fear was remember the Lord. I want to say it to you this morning. Whatever it is you're facing, whatever the problems are, maybe they're real, maybe they're possibilities, are you remembering God? Are you remembering God? Your God. Your great God. The God who we've looked at. This God. I know he's for me. Are you remembering God now, today? Whether it's something that you've got to overcome, whether it's something you're going for in faith, whether it's something that's opposing you, don't fear. Remember God. He's great and he's awesome. Where are you living? Not literally, but in your heart, where are you living? Are you living near to God? Are you living near to God or are you living near to unbelief? Are you living near to God or are you living near to fear? Are you living near to God or are you living near to those terrible circumstances? Who are you living near? These to their people that were potentially destructive. In fact, it caused a great deal of fear in the people. And the way that we speak to one another can be potentially destructive. Now I tell you folks, I want to listen to people who are living near to God. I don't want to listen to unbelief. I don't want to listen to lack of faith. I don't want to listen to fear. I want to listen to people like Lex who say, I am going to. God is going to. Nehemiah said, our God will fight for us. Now, how do you speak? Are you a person who speaks faith? Because this was Nehemiah's solution to this problem. He says, I saw their fear verse 14, and I spoke, remember the Lord. Those of you who are pastoring amongst us, leaders amongst us, I want to tell you, you need to see where the people are. We need to see where one another are. And when you see fear, always speak faith. When you see people getting petrified, terrified, uncertain, always speak faith to them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. It doesn't matter whether the, the problem is just threats or whether the problem is real and actually there in front of you. Remember the Lord. In 2 Kings, chapter 6, maybe you'd just like to have a look at this uh, example of what we need to see. This is when the king of Aram was a little bit annoyed with Elisha because God kept telling Elisha what his plans were, and Elisha kept telling Israel. 
Verse 15, now when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And his servant said to him, alas, alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now what are you seeing? If you live near to God, you see the chariots full of fire all around you. If you're living near the enemy, all you will ever see is that problem or the threat of a problem. We must be people who live near to God. What was the third scheme that was used against Nehemiah? The third scheme was that of compromise. That of compromise. And as Terry said last week, compromise is an enemy trying to appear as a friend. We haven't actually read this, but this is in chapter 6. If you'd like to just whip over to chapter 6. It came about when it was reported to Sambalat and Geshem, etc., that I'd rebuilt the wall, that they sent a message to me saying, come, let us meet together in the plain of Ono. And that was Nehemiah's reaction. Compromise comes to you after you have made a firm decision to do something for God. It often comes. It may even have been last week at the Odeon. And when Terry spoke, you responded. You said, that's me. Whether you went forward or not, you're saying, yes, that's me. I need, I know that I've backed off. I know that I've been cautious and not really been 100%. And uh, you were praying and you're making your decision before God and then the enemy comes in and says, uh, he didn't really mean that. Come on, let's, let's reason about this. Exactly what Terry was talking about. It gets watered down. Our decision gets altered. We've made a stand for something and then it's a kind of clever way of coming to us. It's not to alter our decision, not to turn it round. Not to make it completely different, but just come on, be reasonable. I have a little bit of thought of what the the implications of that are, if you really are going to go that way. The tactic is not direct confrontation, it's distraction to compromise you. When you hear voices trying to compromise decisions that you've made for God, when you hear voices telling you that you can explain away the sin in your life and that doesn't really matter. When you hear voices trying to water down commands of the word of God, you just be careful. Because as Nehemiah said, he wouldn't go because he knew they were planning to harm him. Planning to harm him. The voice of compromise, it sounds so reasonable. They, they expect too much in this church. Uh, don't you understand? Uh, they ask you for your money. They ask you to tithe here. Man alive. And 27,000 offering, that is over the top. These people must be under the thumb. I could never get into that. The voice of compromise. Sounds like it's protecting you. But actually, Nehemiah understood what was behind it. They were trying to harm him. It's very clever, isn't it? That which sounds as though it's going to protect is actually intended to harm. I'm sure that's what must happen with some of these youngsters that go to the big cities and they find themselves without anywhere to go. I'm sure somebody comes alongside them one day and says, look, you need some food? Need a bit of money? Need need somewhere to sleep? It sounds like protection. It sounds as though it's pleasant. But we know the terrible, desperate straits that these kids get into. I tell you, Satan is like that. He wants to harm you. It sounds so reasonable. It sounds so plausible. It sounds as though it's going to help. But his intention is to harm you. He is a roaring lion, 
seeking whom he may devour. Seeking, seeking, looking around. Hungry lions look around for food. They don't phone up the pizza joint and say, you know, deliver a pizza. They look, they're hungry, they're marauding, they're vicious. Satan is a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Seeking. He's a nice morsel of Christian walking along the street. Looks tasty. Cool, no breastplate. That's okay. No helmet. No truth in his life. Easy prey. I just go alongside. You don't need to go to church today. You don't need to be there, really. Forget the care group this week. You know, why don't you go? I said, yeah, I need a rest. It's been a hard week. It's been a hard time. Beats me when people stay away from being with the people of God because they're tired. That really beats me. I don't understand that. There is no spiritual logic in that at all. We stay away because we're tired. Don't we wait upon the Lord who gives us strength, causes us to rise up with wings as eagles? Isn't that what it's about when we come together? And yet the voice of compromise says, come on, you're tired. You've had a hard week, a few late nights. Come on. Well, you have late nights. You watch telly. That's okay. Don't worry about that. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if you miss the worship. Come on. You can get there halfway through. Leave before the word's finished. Doesn't matter. It's the voice of compromise, and its intention is to harm you. Nehemiah understood it, prayed for the strength of God. And just to finish off, the last things that we see at the end of the sixth chapter that came to oppose the work of God were fear and disloyalty. And they both came from within. All that we've talked about has been from without, but now we're looking at problems that come from within. We're looking at Nehemiah's brothers, we're looking at the people of God being used against the people of God. Again, it sounds very thoughtful. Let us close the doors. We're in chapter 6. See what verse it is. Verse 10. Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let's close the doors of the temple for they're coming to kill you and they're coming to kill you at night. But I said, should a man like me flee? Should one such as I go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Verse 13. He was hired for this reason, that I might become frightened and act accordingly and sin so that they might have an evil report that they could reproach me. The purpose of this man, even within the house of God, was to bring Nehemiah into sin. Jesus was very uh, strong with Peter one day and said quite an amazing thing. When Peter was trying to dissuade Jesus from going to the cross, Jesus rounded on Peter the Peter who had said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, made that wonderful statement of revelation that the Father has shown him. Now we find Peter saying, don't go. Don't go to the cross. And Jesus rounds on him and says, get behind me, Satan. That's an amazing thing. That this man who had spoken such revelation was now speaking something which Jesus would so strongly rebuke. I tell you, we need to be careful because it is true that both blessings and cursings come out of our mouths. And the enemy will try and use us to demoralise and discourage one another and to lead one another astray. James 3 tells us that it's a, the small, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it boasts great things. The easiest thing in the world is to say something negative. The easiest thing in the world is to say something discouraging. The easiest thing in the world is to speak unbelief. The easiest thing in the world is to speak doubt. And it has an effect within the body of Christ. And I tell you, take it this seriously. The enemy can use the same mouth that brought revelation of the Son of God to then be attributed to speaking words of Satan. Isn't that an amazing and fearful thing? Peter, such great revelation, and then rebuked by the Lord. We need to be careful how we speak. 
and then disloyalty. We find at the end of chapter 6 that people that were apparently on Nehemiah's side were actually in cahoots with the enemy. Actually on the side of the enemy. In Psalm 55, which I'm just going to read as we close today, we find a terrible commentary on discovering when a friend is unfaithful. It is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me has exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion and my familiar friend, we who had sweet fellowship together, walked in the house of God in the throng, Your speech was smoother than butter, but your heart was war. His words were softer than oil, and yet they were drawn swords. Maybe this is the most hideous of the enemy's schemes in the end. That a person who I thought was my friend, that a person who I thought was with me, a person who had spoken smooth words to me, a person who had said, Yes, we're with you. Yes, we love you. Yes, we support you. It's the enemy's most deceitful scheme to turn that person against his brother. It's exactly what happened with the Lord Jesus, with Judas. Saying one thing, but another thing being in the heart. And I just want to plead with you folks, please don't do that. We're saying, this is the person who was with me. We walked together. We enjoyed fellowship together. And now we find that they're being cynical. And now we find that they're mocking us. And now we find that they're resisting us. That's the most damaging thing in the church of God. Many, many lives have been scarred through churches where that kind of thing has gone on. Where the truth isn't spoken where there isn't love in reality. I plead with you people. If you've got a problem with somebody, please, let's have it out in the open. Don't continue saying one thing and meaning another. Don't let there be smooth words in your mouth when there's war in your heart. Don't live with resentment and don't live with bitterness. Don't say I'm with you when you don't mean it. Nobody's going to condemn you if you say, actually, no, I can't say wholeheartedly I'm with you. Nobody's going to condemn you, but let's have it out in the open. Because the enemy will try and get hold of anything that is not in the light. He will try and bring about disloyalty and betrayal, which will damage the church of God. Nehemiah identified it. He saw it. And he had to deal with it. The wonderful conclusion to this chapter, verses 15 and 16. The wall was completed. And it came about when all our enemies heard of it. All the nations surrounding us saw it. They lost their confidence. For they recognised that this work had not been accomplished, had been accomplished with the help of our God. In the end, when we learn about the schemes of the enemy, when we resist him, He loses his confidence. I want you folks to go away from this morning realising this. We are in a battle. I may not have particularly identified the thing that you feel you are battling with. But please, please, please live carefully as a Christian. Be on the alert. Because you have an enemy who is seeking to devour you. You have an enemy who is always opposing you. But above all that, remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word says that you've made us more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. Thank you that we follow on in the trail of his triumph. Thank you that he's our 
great king, our captain. Thank you, Lord, that we are with you and that you are the captain of the army of the Lord of hosts. I ask you, Lord Jesus, that you will help us to be wise soldiers in this army, being aware of the schemes of the enemy. I pray, Lord, that through this word, many people in this room will identify ways in which the enemy has tried to snare them and that you will help them to throw it off in Jesus' name and not give in to his devices. I pray, Lord, that we will not be ignorant of his schemes. When we think, Lord, that we're just having an off day, when we think we're just a bit down, reveal to us, Lord, how the enemy would try and snare us and try and capture us in his devices. I pray, Lord, that many, many people here will find areas of victory as they become aware of what the enemy is trying to do. We thank you that you've said that when we submit ourselves to God, we can resist the devil and he will flee from us. I pray, Lord, that we will be good soldiers, sensible soldiers, alert and careful soldiers, and that as we do that, we will continue to build the house of God together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.